Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. After a year of COVID, one thing seems to have returned this holiday season, Christmas caroling. While some songs are clearly secular, Hugh Jingle Bells and Frosty the Snowman, others have roots that run, well, more religious. What I found is that the Black Christian Church brings a different interpretive lens to these carols. It is from the perspective of the marginalized, the oppressed, the unhoused. That's Maggie Van Doren. She's an audio producer and the host of Hark, a new five-episode podcast produced by America Media. A little later in the program, Van Doren explains why she set out to get the backstory on some of the season's most popular holiday carols. And what she found might surprise you. But first, we remember best-selling author Anne Rice. She died on December 11, 2021, at the age of 80 after suffering complications from a stroke. Perhaps best known for her 1976 debut novel, Interview with a Vampire, later adapted into a motion picture. Rice's imprint extends far beyond American Gothic fiction. She was a public figure who talked and wrote openly about her upbringing in a traditional Roman Catholic family, the influence the church had on her worldviews, and how she worked through many issues using the characters in her writing. Rice's affiliation, her religious identity, like so many Americans, evolved in some unexpected ways. Let's take a listen to her 2015 interview with guest host Mark Oppenheimer. Anne Rice is one very hip lady, always with or ahead of her times. She was living in Haight-Ashbury when it was the center of the countercultural universe. She was writing vampires before Twilight. She was pro-gay before network TV had figured out what gay was. Having been raised a strict Catholic, she lost her faith in her teens and then rediscovered it in middle age, which she wrote about in her 2009 book, Called Out of Darkness. Re-energized by Christianity, she swore off any future vampire books. But then her faith fled as it had before, and the vampires came back. We invited Ms. Rice to catch us up on what happened along the way. Hi, Anne. Hi. How are you? Good. I'm going to start by playing a clip from the last interview you did with Interfaith Voices, which was in 2009, when you had just published your memoir called Out of Darkness about your return to Christianity. So listen up. Here's what you said. I just decided what would it be like to interview a vampire. So I wrote the book Interview with the Vampire, in which Uh the vampire tells the story to a young interviewer. But the book is really about a lost soul. It's about somebody cast out of life, who is struggling to find his way back, to find some form of redemption, to find some place where he fits. And now I see that that was a metaphor for me, that that's the way I felt. I was Louis, that person in the book. And uh, his long, dark search for meaning, which ends in despair, was really me grieving for my lost Catholic faith. And it's a very somber book and a very unlikely bestseller, but it did become a bestseller. So there you are talking about um, your first vampire book, Interview with a Vampire, and it was about your lost Catholic faith, and that was what animated it. And yet now here you are writing about vampires again. So what happened? Well, I went back to the Catholic Church, as I indicated. I went back in 1998, and what I experienced at that time was a 
a, an admission that I believed in God. And I went back to the church of my childhood thinking that that was the best thing to do and the natural thing to do. What happened eventually was that I didn't lose my faith in God again. I still have that faith, and it's very, very strong. And my faith in Jesus Christ is very strong. But I lost my faith in organized religion. So it's possible that I went back to the church um, only to discover why I had left it in the first place and to leave it again, knowing more about that, why, why, um, why it hadn't worked for me the first time around and why it wasn't really necessary to me now um, as a believer in God. I, I believe in God as, as much or more than I ever did in my life, and I simply don't believe in going through organized religion at this point. Okay, but, but five years ago, you, you said to us that your original vampire novel was really a metaphor for your own sense of loss, sense of being cast out into the wilderness. Yes, um, that's Now true. you're back with the vampires. Are you feeling lost, and are, are you grieving your, your loss of organized religion yet again? I'm seeing them in an entirely different light. They always reflected my spiritual journey. And then for a while there, they didn't. But now they do again. The, the metaphor works for me still. It works for me as a metaphor for an outsider who is always looking for a way to live outside of the normal convention, conventional ways of living. I've left Catholicism again. I, I have great affection for it, great affection for all my Catholic friends, my Catholic relatives, my Catholic heritage, but my search for God has got to be outside of organized religion. It's got to be outside of the rules and regulations. I didn't find him there when I went back. Or if I found him, it was only for a short while. Well, I was going to say, I mean, the, the chronology matters here because in 2009, again, I mean, that was when your book came out. So presumably right. you were writing it in 2007, 2008. Right. Um, and it was in 2010 that you wrote on Facebook, today I quit being a Christian. Mm -hmm. So something happened, you know, pretty dramatically, pretty quickly thereafter where you said, uh, you know, enough. I, I have to imagine there was – were there some specific incidents or some specific people who made you rethink the whole organized religion thing? I don't think it was something dramatic. I think it was something gradual. I think writing the book itself had caused me to confront the fact that I was already halfway out the door. I just didn't know it. I mean, after I wrote that book and published it, I heard from a number of Catholics who told me that it wasn't orthodox. They said, what you've said in there is not what you should have said. You know, at the end of that book, when I talked about, um, about God loving everybody, including gay people, and family values involving gay people being real family values, that was not Orthodox Catholic um, talk. And I got some feedback on that where they said, you know, you're really not as much a part of this as you think you are. And I took that to heart. But I also knew it was true. I, I knew in the process of writing and talking about that book that I was experiencing a lot of inner conflict. And what happened in 2010 was I got the courage to admit that I no longer believed in the church as I had tried so desperately to do for 12 years. But one of the most powerful things about Called Out of Darkness, I think, is that you're admitting up front, look, I'm never going to be an Orthodox Catholic. However, I've discovered that lots of Catholics, indeed most Catholics, are not Orthodox Catholics. I mean what well, you were saying true. was yeah. one reason I can go back to this is because I woke up and looked around and realized most Catholics are using birth control. Many, many Catholics think that gay people are, are OK with God, that there's a whole 
community of people uh, who are in no sense orthodox and yet go go to mass, take communion. So w- why wasn't that why wasn't that community of people enough? It wasn't enough because deep inside, I did not believe the theology. I no longer believed it. Now, again, it took me time to admit this. You know, you, I, I think I don't think belief is a choice. I think you either believe something or you don't. You know, I believe there's a tree outside my window, but it, you know, I don't have a choice about that. I really do believe there's a tree there, but you can lie about belief. You can lie because you want to belong to something so desperately and you need the comfort of belonging. You can lie about that or you can ignore the fact that you don't believe. That's what I was doing when it came to theology. Now, something happened in 2010 inside of me where I felt, I have to admit, I really don't believe this. And I felt it was important for me to come out and say, as an author to my readers, I'm quitting this. I don't, I don't, I am not going to any longer just sit down quietly and live with all the different conflicts and problems here and just give lip, lip service to being a Christian. I'm quitting this group. In Jesus' name, I quit. I, I refuse to be anti-gay. I refuse to be anti-feminist, and I've I've stuck by that. You know, now was that a flip-flop? Yes, that was a flip-flop. But I felt that it was the courageous and right thing to do. But see, but I don't think it was a flip-flop because the way I read "Called Out of Darkness," you were saying I'm coming back to the Roman Catholic Church, knowing that I don't agree with many of the finer points of its theology, that it teaches mm-hmm. any number of things that I think are wrong. But mm-hmm. I also realize that millions of other people think they're wrong, and we're all going to go to mass together, and we're going to mm-hmm. be a column within the church that is not theologically orthodox. I mean, the, I mm-hmm. think I think you were totally upfront about that. Well, it wasn't enough for me. I mean, I did grow up in a very old-fashioned kind of Catholic atmosphere in New Orleans in the 1940s, and I didn't feel comfortable staying the way you describe it. I mean, you're accurately describing it, and I think there are many, many, many Catholics today who feel uh, just the way you've described. They, They are not in tune with the theology, and they go to church for various different reasons. And probably if I'd been a private person, not an author, if I hadn't written and talked so much about it, probably I could have lived with it privately too, and might have kept going for social reasons. But I felt I, the conflict to me was unbearable, so I felt I had to speak up. When you were last on our show, you you told us, uh, "I feel reborn as a Christian writer. I feel very energized." Mm-hmm. Now you're saying that, in a sense, you were saying that from a place of naivete because there were things you hadn't discovered. Right? What were these things that you then discovered? What were these things that then disillusioned you? I wrote two books about the private life of Jesus. They were fictional books. Um, it was the biblical Jesus, the Jesus of tradition, the Jesus of doctrine, but it was his private life. Jesus is a little boy in Nazareth. Jesus is a young man before his baptism in the Jordan. That's what I wrote about. When I confronted what it was going to mean to write about the public life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, when I confronted the shark fest that was going to happen when I tried to jump in there and write theologically about Jesus and what Jesus actually taught and what he actually meant, I just couldn't get to first base. I couldn't do it. I, I By that time, I'd been studying the Bible for 12 years. I was keenly aware of the huge divisions among Christians. It was really penetrating to me that you cannot just say, I'll leave the theology to God. It's not that easy. Um, 
I had received letters from all kinds of Christians and Catholics all over the world, some loving, some damning and condemning. Um, I was keenly aware that I would be entering just, just a bunch of fistfights over what Jesus said, what he meant, what he emphasized, what he did. I couldn't do it. I couldn't write a third book. I couldn't go on with my Christ the Lord series. I still totally totally and proud of and grateful for the first two books. They are, I hope, you know, a a significant work, I hope, about the private life of our Lord, about the incarnation, about what it means to be God and man and be a child and, and, and be a young man before your ministry. I, I, I am so glad that I got to write those books, but there was no way I could continue. There was no way I could get into the fights between born-agains and Catholics and, and, and different denominations over, over what Christianity is really about. I mean, I had grave theological doubts and, and questions about all of it. I really, uh, the more I learned, the more I was out the door. Has Pope Francis tempted you back into the church a little bit? No, but I think he's wonderful, and I think he's caused a lot of other people to go back, and I think it's great. I think he's pulled the rug out from under the American arch conservatives, and they're a bit confused. But I think the mainstream Catholics in America and everywhere are very happy with him. And then he's bringing a lot of people back. That's what people tell me on Facebook. Every time I post a story about Pope Francis, people say, I, I, I love him. I think he's great. Or I had left, but I, this man could bring me back, et cetera, et cetera. So what would bring you back? Would anything? I don't think so because I don't theologically believe the heart of it. I don't believe you have to belong to it to be saved. So I don't think anything would bring me back. Do you think there'll be more vampires down the road in your books? Yes. Yes, I do. I think vampires have always been an effective way for me to talk about my spiritual journey. I'll tell you something. Even after I wrote the Christ the Lord books, one or two very religious people told me that they thought I did a better job in the vampire novels of talking about the same thing. And I was very struck at the time. I thought, how can you, what are you talking about? What do you mean? But they told me that. They told me that. One person said that specifically. You did a better job in Memnock the Devil with your vampire Lestat than you did in Christ the Lord out of Egypt in talking about God. And that was a born-again Christian who told me that. The other person was a Catholic priest. He put it more gently. He, did, he never responded to the two Christ novels, but he said of the vampires, he said, I miss those characters. And do you think it's because they're mapping a kind of correspondence between Lestat or Lewis or any of them onto Christ? Or is it just a general kind of compassion for the outsider or the lost or the person on some sort of pilgrimage? I can articulate my loneliness and my cosmic uncertainty when I speak through Lestat or Louis. They, I can get into their skin and I can talk about... Um, being damned and condemned by people and yet feeling that I want to live a meaningful life. I can wrestle with guilt. I can, I can talk about all the things that matter the most to me when I'm talking through those characters. And do you think that Lestat looks like Brad Pitt? <laughs> well, Brad Pitt actually played Louis. And oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> the vampire Louis was actually me. I forgot. I, I, I forgot. I am the only woman who's ever been played in a movie by Brad Pitt. And uh, no, I was so young when the movie all. came out. I was. <laughs> so did, did they? Did those actors work for you? Uh, yeah, they did a fine job. They really did. Um, they made those characters famous all over the world. Uh, they did. Neil Jordan directed a terrific movie there. 
And both those actors did a superb job. Even now, all these years later, 20 years later, when people talk about Lestat, there'll be a picture of Tom Cruise up there in his costume and wig as Lestat or Brad Pitt as Louis. A question about your happiness. In, In Called Out of the Darkness, you write that there was a priest whom you had told about your very Catholic upbringing, how you'd gone to mass daily and the Catholic schools and your neighborhood. And he said to you, well, if you were brought up like that, you'll never be happy outside the church. For a Catholic like you, there is no life outside the Catholic church. Well, obviously, there is life outside the Catholic Church, and you found it, and you're making it. But do you believe that there was a certain kind of happiness you found within it that you've that you've um, had to let go of to live more honestly outside of it? Yes, you put that perfectly. I let go of that happiness. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska. And in so many places in between. We're a national show and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, if you're just joining, we're remembering prolific author Anne Rice. She passed away on December 11th, 2021 at the age of 80. Rice was a celebrated author who was very open with her fans about her religious beliefs and how they influenced her writing. Before the break, we heard guest host Mark Oppenheimer's conversation with Anne Rice from 2015. They touched on themes of identity, belonging, and how Rice navigated the theological differences that she has with the institutions of faith and its leadership. All of that led her to speak openly about the fact that she was, quote, quitting the church. At several points during the conversation, Oppenheimer references an earlier interview between Rice and my predecessor, Maureen Fiedler, in which she describes her return to Catholicism. Let's take a listen to an excerpt of that conversation from 2008. Why did you leave the faith? 
You know, I I don't seem to be able to make it clear. Um, I I lost my faith. I I think what tempted me more than anything else was the world. I wanted to know the wide world. I wanted to read modern authors like Hemingway and Faulkner, people we'd never read in Catholic school. I wanted to read Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus. I wanted to be a member of the Beat Generation. I wanted to be sophisticated. And uh, the Catholicism of my childhood didn't permit for that kind of reading, mm. even, really. I broke with the church. I made a very, very tragic mistake. I stopped praying. I wish when I look back on it, um, if I regret anything, it's that I didn't keep talking to the Lord, that I didn't take the problems to Him. I broke with the church because I just didn't believe it could be the true church and very soon talked myself into being an atheist. Mm. But then in time, of course, you became this famous vampire novelist writing about all kinds of godless creatures. But today, when you look back, you say those novels reveal what was going on inside you, your quest for the God you left behind. What do you mean by that? Well, if you, when I wrote the novels, I was focusing entirely on the story. I just decided what would it be like to interview a vampire. So I wrote the book Interview with the Vampire, in which uh-huh. the vampire tells the story to a young interviewer. But the book is really about a lost soul. It's about somebody cast out of life who is struggling to find his way back, to find some form of redemption, to find some place where he fits. And now I see that that was a metaphor for me, that that's the way I felt. I was Louis, that person in the book. And uh, his long, dark search for meaning, which ends in despair, was really me grieving for my lost Catholic faith Mm. and grieving at that time for my daughter who had died uh, before her sixth birthday. All those griefs are mixed together in that book. And it's a very somber book and a very unlikely bestseller, but it did become a bestseller. And that's something you came to realize only later, probably not when you actually wrote the book. Oh, definitely. If, if if anybody had stood over my desk and said, you're writing about your daughter, you're writing about your Catholic faith, I would have been blocked. I thought I was writing about Louis' adventures. You know, here he was wearing a black cape and walking through the night and looking for victims and looking for older vampires who could tell him the meaning of the world and tell him whether God or the devil existed. And the characters were talking on and on about God and the devil and, and was there proof of God? Was mm. there proof of the devil? And I, I was I was just very focused on the material, and only later did I see that it was all about my own quest for Mm -hmm. the truth, really, and my own sorrows. So that vampire was really you. It was. It was. As a matter of fact, it... You know, <laughs> when they made the movie of Interview with the Vampire, Brad Pitt played the part of Louis, and he had trouble playing that passive role. Well, he was playing a woman. That's why he was playing me. Uh-huh. <laughs> he didn't know it. I mean, Louis was me. So, uh, Although you also say in the book you don't know gender boundaries or you've never really experienced them in life. That, well, that's very true. I, I found it very easy to, to write about people who transcended gender because I had uh, very little sense of gender. I don't walk through the world thinking of myself as a woman. I walk through the world thinking of myself as a person. But I don't know that that is a result of Catholic school. I think that many Catholic girls go through girls' schools just as I did, and they come out with a very strong sense of being women. I'm not sure what happened with me, but I emerged being very suspicious of gender distinctions and very confused by them. Mm. And so my books really are filled with people who pay no attention to them. It doesn't matter to vampires what gender you are. 
Hmm, that's interesting, especially coming out of a church that, in fact, makes quite a distinction between the two. Well, it does. It does. And that was a little bit of a problem for me as a teenager when I found out I couldn't be a priest. I was crushed. But then I decided to be a nun, and then later I gave up that dream when I discovered boys and the world, and uh, that was maybe the the beginning of my drifting away from my devotion to God when I gave up that dream of being a nun, but it was something I mourned for all my life, really. Interesting. You date your return to faith to 1998, and I have to tell you, I was mesmerized by your description of what happened. You talk about being really obsessed with the person of Christ, and you say, and I'm quoting, I was Christ-haunted. What do you right. mean? Well, I was haunted everywhere I went by the thought of Jesus Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection. I think I mentioned every time I turned on the television, it seemed EWTN was on no matter when I turned it on and somebody was saying Mass. And and we should say that's the Eternal Word television network on which Mother Angelica is famous. Exactly, and the Eternal Word television network was fairly new at that time. Mm -hmm. But every time I turned on the television, there it was, and there was someone saying Mass. And I really felt the hound of heaven. I felt that Christ was actually calling me back. And what finally happened on that Sunday afternoon in 1998 was I gave up. I surrendered. I said, yes, I love you. I believe in you. And uh, I stopped tormenting myself with theological questions and moral questions that I couldn't answer, I surrendered. I said, in effect, to the Lord, I believe in you, and I know you know the answers. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly realized, if you know all the answers, I don't have to know them. Mm -hmm. And I just got up from the chair and, and went and sought out a priest and went to confession and went back to the church. And to me, it was it was going back to the banquet table. It was going back to the table of the Last Supper. Mm. It was going back to the Lord in a very, very personal, visceral way. Now, as we both know, a lot of Catholics have left the Church because of its teachings on issues that, from the book, it sounds like you don't agree with either, like teachings on birth control, its refusal to ordain women. Catholics as a whole were shocked by the pedophilia scandal. But it sounds like faith for you is not dependent on the institutional church or affected by its failings. You can disagree with it. You can be aghast at something it does, but it doesn't rock your faith. How do you separate the two? As a lot of people don't. Well, first of all, the church is always reforming itself, and there have been times in history when the church was very, very corrupt and massive reforms were required. And I think the more you read church history, the less you worry about the policies or the scandals of the current church. I think the pedophilia scandal is absolutely appalling. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I was shocked, as were Catholics that I knew, completely shocked and demoralized by it. But it's not going to keep me from going to Mass. It's it's something the church has to reform. It has to clean up that mm-hmm. that awful mess, and it has to see that it never happens again. And really, my going to Mass every week and standing before the Lord and, and saying the Lord's Prayer with other Catholics and receiving communion with other Catholics really has nothing to do with whatever corruption there might be. Mm-hmm. You know, God didn't promise us that Catholics would be saints. He didn't say, I'm going to give you a church and everybody in it is going to be perfect and holy. And I think that people who go away from the church because of the scandal perhaps misunderstand 
the thing for us to do is remain in the church and continue to support the church and trust that the church will indeed reform itself. It mm-hmm. really will. And you would like the church to set the issues of sexuality and gender aside in a certain sense. I would, but that was that was said at the very end of the book, mm-hmm. and I hope it was said in a very soft voice because the truth is I don't want to go to the barricades over that. I'm at a point in my life where I want to reach out to as many Christians as possible with the novels that I write and this book, and I really want to focus on what we all share and what brings us together. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to focus on what separates us and causes us to quarrel. But I did feel in the book I had to say something about that, my concern um, about sexuality and Catholicism. But Mm -hmm. I don't want to say things or do things that divide us as Christians. I want to bring us all together. Now, I'm someone, Anne, who has read a lot of spiritual books over the years. And I have to say, your book reminds me of some of the lives of the saints that I have read. And I'm not here trying to canonize you, but it reminds me of that because it describes someone being driven yourself by an overwhelming desire for God, like God was chasing you and chasing you, and you finally let him catch you and envelop your life. Is that fair? Well, I think that's true. I, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I am certainly not a saint and, and would could never be a saint, but I do think the book has that feeling. That's why I quote Francis Thompson's poem, The Hound of Heaven. It's, it's a beautiful description mm-hmm. of, of being pursued by Christ. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. Every season has a soundtrack. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Growing up Muslim in America, Christmas provoked lots of interesting conversations, especially when I would join neighbors in Kalamazoo, Michigan, in the tradition of caroling. My favorite song, The Little Drummer Boy. Singing the songs in chorus or caroling on the streets was one of my favorite activities during this time of year. When I was growing up, my mom, though, was a little hesitant. She would ask me not to sing the lyrics, but suggest that I just, well, hum along, especially to the parts that talked about or described Jesus as divine. I sort of ignored that because I personally don't believe singing a song is akin to declaring one's faith. But to my mom, the line is not so clear. In her mind, these songs are religious, which got me wondering, are they really? And like every question out there, I found a podcast that offers some answers. If a song doesn't explicitly reference the manger or the nativity scene, but does carry with it uh, certain values of the tradition of the season and has been inspired by the practice of Christianity, uh, then I think it is a Christmas song. 
That's Maggie Van Dorn. She's the host of Hark, a five-episode podcast produced by America Media. She was the founder of Interfaith Matters podcast for the Interfaith Center of New York. In recent years, she joined the team of America Media, a Jesuit media group and publishers of America Magazine, along with a number of podcasts. Back in 2019, Van Dorn produced a 15-part podcast series, Deliver Us, that explored the Roman Catholic clerical sex abuse crisis. Van Dorn describes herself as a committed Catholic, dedicated to healing the church from the inside. She loves the art of storytelling. At the beginning of Advent, her latest project, Hark, hit the pod feed. To learn more, I caught up with Maggie from her home outside Asheville, North Carolina, from where she lives and works. Why did you decide to do this particular podcast? Well, actually, maybe on a very personal level, after studying the abuse crisis for so long, I needed something cheerful. Mm. (laughs) I also am a big consumer of podcasts. And so I listen to Song Exploder, which takes apart popular songs uh, with usually the artist or the producer. And I'm always fascinated by how art is made. And I started thinking about how our common or popular religious hymns and songs that, you know, you're belting in church are made. And and then I thought, you know, carols, Christmas carols are ubiquitous. Like whether you are a believer or not, whether you identify as secular or religious, you're probably singing Christmas carols this time of year. And And even if you grew up singing them, you might not always know the theology behind them. Was my mom legit in her worry <laughs> that if I'm singing this, that I'm like, I'm declaring my faith? Oh. What, what do you think? What's your take yeah. on that? So I would say like up until the late 19th century, most songs were explicitly religious about the birth of Christ and confessional and, and sort of declaring Christ the Lord. And it really was only in the late 1800s that we started getting like the jingle bells and, you know, songs about the cultural festivities of Christmas. So there is a long lineage of that. And we just released an episode on Adeste Fideles, or otherwise known as O Kamali Faithful, which has the Nicene Creed built into the lyrics of mm. the song. So a lot of people actually grew up learning their theology through hymns and carols. So yeah, I think the the early ones definitely were. The first Christian carol that we have on record is from 129 AD. The Bishop of Rome uh, urged people to sing Angel's Hymn. Uh, we don't really know what that sounds like. There are no recordings then and probably no sheet music. I listened to the first episode of the podcast and I was mm-hmm. struck by some of the things I learned. Like there was a backlash against singing and festive songs like yeah i mean you wouldn't know that on my street when the carolers come you know mm-hmm. <laughs> barreling come down with hot chocolate and all kinds of spicy things in their cups tell me a little bit about the history of that evolution that you learned mm-hmm. in doing the podcast yeah, I like to say this was the first war on christmas in the 17th century in england during the Civil War, when the Puritans were in power and Oliver Cromwell was head of parliament, uh, they actually banned Christmas carols. Because from the Puritans' perspective, it was frivolous and popish, and they didn't see anything in scripture that directly called us to celebrate the birth of Jesus in this way. And 
so it, yeah, it was it was officially banned in England. Um, people, of course, continued to sing underground, some boisterously in the streets, you know, defiantly. And when the English monarchy was restored, caroling came back. <laughs> They're obviously in Christianity and in a lot of traditions, lots of competing points of view on practices where some declare something to be unlawful and mm-hmm. others see it as core, as central to some of their celebrations. Being Muslim, I'm thinking about like mm. Sufi devotionals and then mm. some, you know, uh, groups that have a very different interpretation in which they ban music. So much of this seems to me to come back to culture, that we as flesh and blood humans have a culture that we, that our theology and religious beliefs has to take root in. And, you know, so much of art is just reimagining that theology in a creative form. And so, yeah, you you do get things that are non-scriptural, non-canonical, that might not be the sort of purest expression or fully accurate depiction of our religious beliefs. Um, But that's the difference between dogma and art. I obviously take a very liberal approach to this and sort of love all of the festivities and culture, or most all of them surrounding Christmas and and other religious celebrations, because I think it's the way that um, spirituality gets expressed, that theology gets enculturated, and this is what we as humans do. When you talk about that role that culture plays, it reminds me of a piece in the intro where you remind listeners of the timing of Christmas and it overlapping with the winter solstice and the traditions in many present-day European countries of what celebration looked like during the winter solstice pre-Christianity, pre-Christian belief systems. Who did you talk to to get this context? Who gave you some insights? historians, like music historians, musicologists, conductors. It's been really fun to dive into music theory, of which I know hardly anything about. Um, But yeah, they're explaining like basic concepts that make us a song sing. Um, And theologians and scripture scholars to help us interpret the lyrics or texts of these songs. Thousands of years ago, carols were sung in Europe, um, but they weren't Christian Christmas carols. Uh, they were often pagan songs. Mm-hmm. So a lot of Christianity uh, picks up from the pagan world and has adopted ancient pagan rituals, celebrations, thinking of, of the winter solstice here, um, that Christmas overlapped with that uh seasonal celebration. And so, um, you know, just all of the lighting of candles, of um, singing songs, of bringing warmth and light in a period of profound darkness, really. Yeah, so a lot of the traditions that Christianity adopted and sort of tweaked and made its own uh, do have pagan origins. I don't find that threatening at all. I, I was going to ask you, like, <laughs> when you shared that, did, did listeners have a reaction to it? Was there any sort of pushback? You know, not yet. But I think when you have a tradition that is thousands of years old, um, you're you're bound to acquire some really profound and meaningful uh cultural connections, let's say. I've never been personally threatened by it, but I am really grateful to say that the church that I grew up in, um, there was an awareness of this larger cultural patrimony. 
what did you learn about the rhythms and sounds and the tonality of Christmas carols? Talk to me about those low somber sounds that we hear in some carols and some songs. And when you hear them, we mm. it, it they sound sad. So the minor chord, which I did know about major and minor chords. Major chords are like sort of warm, homish, generally we think happier and then the minor key or chord song sound sad or strained or eerie and you'll hear that in like silent night it came upon a midnight clear we three kings O come O come emmanuel is is one that we spotlight in the series and you know what was most interesting to me was i always thought okay this is a sad or eerie song and what i learned is that that is a much more modern interpretation. The folks who were originally composing or singing this wouldn't have brought that association to the music. There might have been a sense of strain or longing, which is really appropriate for the season of Advent leading up to Christmas, that it's one of anticipation and you know, sort of preparing the way. Actually, it sounds almost like Sunday school. It's like, let's get serious here, folks. And that the songs were intended to kind of bring about this attentiveness to the theology or to like the significance of what folks were preparing for. Well, and if you listen to the scripture readings in mass at this time, they're about Jesus's coming, but they're also about the second coming. And some of them tend a little apocalyptic. And um, it's a question of like, are you ready? Are you ready for the coming of our Lord or the, you know, the coming of Jesus? And so there is an invitation to stay awake, to be ready and prepared and to embrace this season as a time for that coupled, of course, with the joy of Christmas. But yeah, it's I think what what is really, really, really beautiful about Christmas music is it's not just jingle bells and merriment and happy, happy, happy all the time. There's a recognition that our world is broken and sinful and in a state of longing, that we long for things to be made right. So when we sing like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, it's just like a sustained longing or, or desire that our world be healed or that we could be a part of that. And so that is also what Christmas is about. And, you know, I think Christmas carols can hold all of that. In the series, the role that Black Christian caroling the influence it had, and specifically tapping into liberation theology. When you describe that brokenness, what did you learn when you dived into that? Mm. So at first, I was really concerned about you know doing this series because so many of the most popular carols that we sing have a European lineage. And so I, I wanted to explore like the if there are, there are black Christmas carols or spirituals or gospel music that um, has come has come through, what I found is that the black Christian church brings a different interpretive lens to these carols and stories, and it is from the perspective of the marginalized, the oppressed, the unhoused um, that there is a an attention to that. And of course, that's in the nativity story all along. But, you know, liberation theology looks from the vantage point of of the people, you know, and, and 
the people, including those in marginalized communities. And so those communities are going to recognize parts of themselves and their story in the story of Jesus um, that others might not. And I, yeah, so I think like bringing one's whole history and culture to the reading or singing of a carol transforms it. Is there a particular carol that comes to mind when you think about that? So Dr. Kim Harris is a theologian who came on for Adeste Fideles, Come All Ye Faithful, and she totally flipped the way that I think about that song. Um, I, I have to admit I was a little turned off by like the directive to come worship, like come worship, adore Christ. I uh, was hearing it in that tone. And she said, you know, the black church might hear this more as come let us adore him. For people who are enslaved, whose children had been sold away from them, whose family member may have run away and you don't know where they are or how they are, whose spouse may have been sold from them. The only thing you could hope is that the angels who are watching over all of us would somehow know where they were and how they were. So when I think of sing choirs of angels, well, those same angels who are watching over are also invited into this community that is singing and praising and worshiping God. Who was singing this with us last year that's not singing it with us this year? And to remember that so there can be that sting in the heart. And yet as people of faith, we say they are singing with us still. We kind of fleshed out this whole theology of worship that I wasn't expecting, um, but you know, that helped me understand this song differently. Mm. I was reading that it was St. Francis of Assisi in 1223 who started nativity plays in Italy. I was just struck by that, and I was thinking mm. about how in a time where there's low literacy and oral tradition yes. allowed us to kind of do that storytelling and mm-hmm. share traditions, that singing was embedded in the art forms of whether you were around a fire or watching a play unfold on a stage in which you didn't have the technology Mm. to whip out your phone and record it and share it. Um, All the things that we do today that don't necessitate us to tune in 100% and listen. Right. Uh, Such a different time we're living in now. You know, as a kind of like a a defender of the arts and even the audio arts, um, to encounter a message through uh, artistic performance or any work of art, I think has the ability to transform us more than words sometimes. I think that it's um, sometimes more effective than traditional wordy preaching um, to have, you know, the arts kind of at the center. And when is the next one coming out on Sunday? So the really magical thing about Hark is that each week we have left listeners in suspense, wondering what the next episode is going to be. And that's deliberate. You know, we we want to uh, conjure up the spirit of anticipation in Advent. And so I can't tell you. I can't tell you what the final episode is going to be. You have to tune in. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 
You know what really surprised me is how these carols evolved. I always thought of them as like a Christmas present that just comes all bundled together. You know, someone wrote the the music, the score, and the lyrics, and that is not true at all. They usually evolved over centuries. So something will start as an 8th century monastic chant and then get paired with a 15th century French tune. Um, and then, you know, that gives us O Come, O Come, Emmanuel in, in the 19th century. And so these songs have taken literally centuries to marinate and to bake and to get really, really good. Um, but that also means that the person or communities who originally wrote the lyrics or the text of the song um, would never have heard it as a Christmas banger, right? Or, or, or as a you know, immensely popular song. And, you know, in the case of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Mendelssohn wrote the tune and it was originally designed for the celebration, the 400th anniversary of the Gutenberg printing press. And it was this very patriotic German song, you know, almost like a uh, a chorale. And so he had developed the, the music for the printing press, kind of in praise of the printing press and, uh, <laughs> and, and this enlightenment period. You know, in the last two years, we've had a growing conversation in this country of racial reckoning about the roots and deconstructing systemic racism in the places we least likely see it. Did you encounter any mm. of that as you were digging into some of these carols? Did you learn any bits about history that you may not have wanted to discover? Yeah, certainly. Charles Wesley, uh, who wrote the text for Hark the Herald Angels Sing, uh, supported slavery, right? And that is horribly uncomfortable, right? And uh, I, I think that's, you know, part of this reckoning is looking at the gifts that individuals have brought to culture. You know, it it, it is a lovely song, but also seeing them in full historical context. And that's true for looking back a few centuries. That's true for our times today, that we do not have perfect historical figures. We, we, we're not perfect people. If nothing else, it should really just open up conversation. I don't, I don't feel like saying never sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing again, um, in many ways, because it was, it doesn't just belong to him. It belongs to uh, many people who actually contributed and, and wrote that song. Um, it, it also belongs to the people who want to sing it or who have found it meaningful. So it's tricky, but I appreciate that that question. And just, you know, anytime I think we're looking back in history, we're going to have to wrestle with it. Thank you, Maggie, for spending some time with me to talk about Christmas carols, songs, and boy, I'm now going to start Googling Little Drummer Boy and get the backstory. <laughs> yeah, please get the, get the story. Get back to yeah. me. Let me yeah. know. Yeah, I will. <laughs> Maggie Van Dorn is a producer with America Media. Her latest project, Hark, can be found wherever you stream your podcasts. Or you can find it at americamagazine.org. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. This week's producer is Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and the original production team that produced the archival episodes we heard at the top of the show, led by producer... Laura Corral. 
Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.